Welcome to all the writers, artists, marketers, dreamers, and passers-by. It's time for building a better story world. Steel Tyler Philippak here, as always, and I'm ready to guide you once more into the worlds of imagination, giving you the tips and tools that have allowed me to create narrative universes for clients such as Nickelodeon, Microsoft, and the Walt Disney Company, among many more. We've gone over the basics of creating a traditional narrative universe and have traversed the wilds of advanced design techniques. We're going to be wrapping that latest arc today, but the benefit of these past few episodes is that you will be able to listen to them in whatever order you want. Build out your story world in whatever fashion best speaks to you. I want you to create the story worlds that are reflective of all the power and majesty of your dreams. Al Frank Baum tossed out fairies and elves for Scarecrow's Tin Men and Lions. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore while Hayao Miyazaki moved on from science fiction and steampunk when he made something very personal and small that involved cat buses. Your story worlds can be massive or minuscule, but they should feel real. The first and most important part is exploring the elements that speak to you, because your enthusiasm will infuse your world with passion, but equally important is making your story world feel lived in. Your lands of imagination will feel artificial if they seem ready-made, with no real history or sense of place. We call these Chia Pet story worlds. Everything's ready to grow. Real worlds don't function like that. They and the people that inhabit them aren't perfect. The organic growth that occurs day by day, season by season, year by year, leads to twists and turns, mysteries and mistakes, confusion and contradictions. A perfect world where everything makes sense is boring, because there's nothing to explore, and all the explanation is simply exposition, rather than adventure. There are several ways to get around this. As detailed in our last episode, The Rules, you could detail one specific segment of your story world, but allow all the other elements to emerge as the narrative develops. But I think an idea that is just as strong is to assume that the audience is familiar with your story world. Throw them in there without a paddle. You'll be surprised just how much people understand given the proper context. They don't need to know every legal code in military courts to understand a confrontation about the abuses of power. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! They don't need to know the history of the monarchy of England to understand the burden of responsibility to maintain the family name. A beloved common man may marry for love, why not me? If you were a common man, on what basis could you possibly claim to be king? Sounds like you've studied our wretched constitution. Sounds like you haven't. In the words of Robert McKee, you should make your exposition ammunition. Never say that a character is an alcoholic. Have them say, quote, I fell into a bottle of Old Crow and spent a decade in the gutters of Atlantic City, unquote. One is explanatory. The other builds a time and place for your characters, eking out their world while at the same time showing their personality. These are the mists of your world, the untold histories and mysteries that are at the frontier of your dreams, the places that are only hinted at, at least at first. They speak to the wonder in our souls, going back to the time when you were a child and every adventure out the door could lead you to anywhere. Your work is like a map for your audiences, but you should only fill out just enough to get them there. Audiences love the blank spaces on that map, in the lands where the dragons are said to dwell. It allows their imaginations to run wild about what might be, merging their dreams with your own, and building out your world together. Pop culture is filled with these moments. A single skull on a trophy wall, hinted at millennia of battles between the xenomorphs of aliens and the hunters of Predator. 
The Romulan homeworld of Romulus was a major planet in Star Trek, but its sister planet, Remus, not to mention its own denizens, wouldn't appear until 2002's Star Trek Nemesis. The giant slore mentioned in Ghostbusters became a boss monster in a subsequent video game. During the third reconciliation of the last of the McKetrick supplicants, they chose a new form for him, that of a giant slore. Many shubs and zools knew what it was to be roasted in the depths of the slore that day, I can tell you. You shouldn't overwhelm your audience with these kinds of tidbits. Any fan of fantasy novels will know the rising ichor in your gullet when you open up to the first page and see a wall of proper nouns with weird spellings. Adding a few here and there, on the other hand, makes your world feel like it's been around for a while and will persist into the future. George Lucas was a master with this, and his foundational work with the original Star Wars film, now known as Episode Four: A New Hope, has created an entire universe of content. One might even call it an empire. <laughs> Famously, Lucas crafted a huge amount of this world before shooting one frame of film, but he didn't reveal his entire world all at once. He chose one particular segment of a much larger story that could showcase all the fun of his world, from duels to dogfights in space to classic archetypal rivalries, and allowed it to be seen through the eyes of an outsider so that audiences could experience it in real time. They shut down the main reactor. will be destroyed for sure. This is madness. His team literally built sets in the Tunisian desert and allowed them to age so that they would seem lived in. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. Due to financing issues and the amount of novel special effects required for the film, Lucas also used a few set pieces of action to frame the story, but otherwise focused on interpersonal conflict to drive the narrative. When I left you, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. Only a master of evil, does. <laughs> But rather than look at the entire film or franchise, let's focus on one small segment that showcases the mists of Star Wars brilliantly. General Kenobi, years ago you served my father in the Clone Wars. Now he begs you to help him in his struggle against the Empire. I regret that I am unable to present my father's request to you in person, but my ship has fallen under attack and I'm afraid my mission to bring you to Alderaan has failed. I have placed information vital to the survival of the Rebellion into the memory systems of this R2 unit, my father will know how to retrieve it. You must see this droid safely delivered to him on Alderaan. This is our most desperate hour. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. I'm tempting the legal hordes of the House of Mouse by playing the entire speech by Princess Leia here, but I feel it's important to break down because it showcases three brilliant ways of building out the mists of your story world. There are eras of time, Years ago, you served my father in the Clone Wars. Places yet to be explored. But my ship has fallen under attack, and I'm afraid my mission to bring you to Alderaan has failed. And most importantly, the people of your story world and their relationship to each other. Now he begs you to help him in his struggle against the Empire. I have placed information vital to the survival of the Rebellion into the memory systems of this R2 unit. This is our most desperate hour. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Let's begin with this one, since conflict and characters are what audiences care about the most. In the original trilogy of Star Wars, there are two primary factions, the insidious, overwhelming forces of the Empire, and the smaller, brave soldiers of the Rebellion. We get a brief glimpse into the scale of this conflict in the opening scene when a large rebel transport ship is attacked by an even larger Star Destroyer, 
but until we get to the climactic battle over the Death Star, Lucas was content to showcase small bits of history that highlight just how well this conflict is going for the Empire, and how poorly it is going for those who defy it. I have just received word that the Emperor has dissolved the Council permanently. The last remnants of the Old Republic have been swept away. Note also that there is a third tiny faction, the Jedi Order. Obi-Wan Kenobi will take Luke under his wing and begin his training in the way of the Force via weaponry. What is it? It's your father's lightsaber. This is the weapon of a Jedi Knight. Not as clumsy or random as a blaster. Philosophy. Your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. And history. A young Jedi named Darth Vader, who was a pupil of mine until he turned to evil, helped the Empire hunt down and destroy the Jedi Knights. The lesson here is to focus on what's important and hint at the rest. Do we know what happened to all the Jedi? No. Do we know why the Republic has fallen? No. Do we know how the Empire was founded? Heck, we didn't even see the Emperor until the next film. What is thy bidding, my master? There is a great disturbance in the Force. What's important is that there is a totalitarian regime that is hell-bent on crushing dissent within its borders, a smaller group of freedom fighters who will risk their lives to defy them, and a tiny band that is on an urgent mission that could tip the tides of the war. It is one story in a much larger universe, however. By the end of the first film, the Death Star is destroyed, but Darth Vader survives, the war continues, and the Empire will undoubtedly strike back. That's enough Star Wars for the moment. Who are the players in your universe? If you're following along, I want you to write down at least two major factions represented in your work. These can be political parties, religious sects, or even fraternities. You want your state of kind material, freshman? No, no, no. no. He's an Omega Howl guy. We saw him first. No way, we did. I'll take it from here, gentlemen. Johnny Worthington, president of Roar Omega Roar. Then give them a list of five attributes apiece, before listing a few major players and several events. Who are the leaders now, and who were they in the past? What was the event that started off this rivalry, and how is it complicated later on? Why must these two factions continue to fight, long after this conflict has begun? Next, as an optional assignment, consider creating a third faction, one that is much smaller or tangential to overarching conflicts, but has the potential to catalyze them. For instance, the primary conflict in Game of Thrones is the battle over the crown in Westeros. But as that's playing out, Daenerys Targaryen is amassing her forces on the continent of Essos. I, Daenerys of House Targaryen, first of my name, breaker of chains and mother of dragons, sentence you to die. Or in the case of a battle between fraternities, this catalyst might be the school administration. It's my job to make great students greater not make mediocre students less mediocre. Give this catalyst five attributes, as well as a few major players and events, topping it off with how this group could galvanize either side to victory. If Luke falls to the dark side, remember, the Empire will be assured of victory. The son of Skywalker must not become a Jedi. If he could be turned, he would become a powerful ally. Yes. As a final bit to this assignment, I want you to take out two highlighters, one pink and one yellow, and go over each of these lists. Highlight in yellow at least one character or event per faction that you will not reference directly in your first entry. In pink highlighter, highlight one element per faction that you will only hint at in offhand comments. 
These aren't hard and fast rules, but by limiting the scope of what you're going to commit to narrative, it will force you to think of clever ways to describe the conflict that will invoke the audience's imagination without overwhelming them. Hit the pause button if you need, and then unpause when you're ready to continue. Next up on our exploration through the mists are the undiscovered countries. These are the realms of your story world that are not pertinent to the exact moment of your stories, but will be influential in the future. For Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time, this was Sanchen. For Tolkien, it was the land of the Easterlings. For Mad Max, it is whatever town is down the road in post-apocalyptic Australia. People come here to trade, make a little profit, do a little business. Got nothing to trade, you've got no business in Barton Town. Now we're on the inside, that's all. Next! The original trilogy of Star Wars was bound by technology and cost, but rather than limit the imagination of George Lucas and his collaborators, this allowed them to winnow their focus to a rule of three. Only show three major planets per film. In A New Hope, this is Tatooine, the Death Star itself, and Dantooine. We know about Alderaan, hear Han brag about the Kessel Run, and assume there's a capital of the Republic and or the Empire, but we won't see that city for some time. That was a strong narrative choice by Lucas et al. It kept the focus of the narrative on the here and now. The Rebellion is on its last legs, remember. The Empire has a new superweapon that will assure them of victory across the galaxy. What's important right now is the rescue of Princess Leia, getting the plans to the Rebel base, and finding some weakness to destroy the Death Star. Epic storytelling is a grand thing, but it requires time and space. Focusing on the journey of Luke, Leia, Han, Chewie, Ben, 3PO, and R2 made the first Star Wars film feel relatable, while also allowing for audiences to imagine just how big and grand this universe might be. Future entries would showcase that vision. In The Phantom Menace, a younger Obi-Wan will travel to the city planet of Coruscant, revealing it to the audience at the same time. Coruscant, the entire planet is one big city. There's Chancellor Valorum shuttle. And look over there. Senator Palpatine is waiting for us. Solo, a Star Wars story, meanwhile, will finally reveal just what it meant when Han Solo said that he did the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs. Since when do you know how to fly? 190 years old? You look great. We also learned via the ending of Rogue One just how Leia got the plans for the Death Star in the first place. Your Highness, the transmission we received. What is it they've sent us? Help. In addition, there are all the other fun places from content such as Shadow of the Empire, Knights of the Old Republic, The Force Unleashed, and Fallen Order. Those are just some of the video games in this series, by the way. The extended universe, comics, novels, and even audio dramas have built out a vast and diverse narrative landscape, all built on a few lines of dialogue from 1977. Now it's your turn. What are some of the unknown lands from your story world? These don't have to be entire planets or nations. For instance, in The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, we learn about the contestants' backgrounds, families, and hometowns, but audiences will only visit these places when there are four contenders remaining. We're in Auburn! Woo! <laughs> this place means literally the whole entire world to me because I grew up here, but also because my dad coaches at Auburn University. I get to introduce Peter to a little bit of my world. For your own work, write down at least three locales that your characters must visit in your initial entry. These are the places of great confrontation or conflict. The stadiums where the final game is going to be played. The stage of the final performance. Or the bar where everybody hangs out. Good afternoon, everybody. Hey, Mr. Peterson, what's the story? Then list the people who inhabit each of these worlds. These could be your main or secondary characters, but whoever they are, they shouldn't be visitors to these realms. 
They are the citizens that know the land and its boundaries. Give yourself some space, because I then want you to write three locations that were formative to each of these characters before they got to this homeland. Perhaps they went to or dropped out of a prestigious university. They might have been stationed on a military base in Japan or Proxima Centauri. They could have lost their freedom in a game of dice in 12th century India or won their fortune thanks to the luck brought to them by the first dime they ever earned. Here it is, me lucky dime. Finally, choose just one of those places of historicity for each character and write down one line of dialogue that hints at what happened there. Don't be explicit. Allow the audience some agency to think about the importance of this place to your characters. You might have a character make reference to their role in the military, but not reveal just what that means until later. I protect the galaxy from the threat of invasion from the evil Emperor Zerg, sworn enemy of the Galactic Alliance. Oh, really? I'm from play school. And I'm from Mattel. Or you could talk about their formative years at a university in which they cheated to get ahead. You are looking at the only Starfleet cadet who ever beat the no-win scenario. How? I reprogrammed the simulation so it was possible to rescue the ship. What? He cheated. I changed the conditions of the test. You'll need to refine these if you write them into your final program, novel, comic, or episode, of course. The goal to good dialogue and good locations are that they help facilitate the plot and characters. We'll get into the details of both character speech and proper story world location in good time. But for now, I just ask you to do one thing. Don't be boring. Instead of a school, consider a semester at sea. The ship beneath you is not a toy. And sailing's not a game. So why the hell do it? Bill's character, Mr. Preston, of which you are in desperately short supply. Instead of an office building, consider a firehouse. I think this building should be condemned. There's serious metal fatigue in all the load-bearing members. The wiring is substandard. It's completely inadequate for our power needs. And the neighborhood is like a demilitarized zone. Instead of a secret hideout, consider an ice palace in the Arctic. Wow, this is breathtaking. It's our Krypton on Earth. Your locales don't have to be as outlandish as all that. And you may not visit these places for many episodes or many years, or ever. But the more interesting they are, the more they will speak to your audience's imagination. Take a moment to recharge your own imagination or finish up this exercise, and then continue on with the last segment of the episode. We're down to the final element of story world design, the timeline of the narrative. That is, when the stories take place in a broader context. Singular stories about individuals don't require much of this because the adventure is wrapped up in one book or one movie. Bigger stories and larger universes need a bit more of a chronology to make them feel like there was a history long before the viewer showed up to see what kinds of shenanigans were going on. Court these guys? I mean, they were the best in the world. Did they start out like that? No. These are the civil wars that inform current conflicts, the foundations of empires, the senior class that graduated before our characters were even freshmen, or the battles that seemed so important in the moment, but were just a precursor of what was to come. I knew you would come one day, but surely you must know no longer half what you see. Tell me, Grindelwald, tell me where it is. <laughs> tell me who possesses it. This kind of chronology is big enough that it will require an entire episode to describe in detail. But for now, let's look at how George Lucas created an era of content with a single line. Years ago, you served my father in the Clone Wars. The Clone Wars. What did that mean? Was that one conflict or many? How long did it or they last? Who was fighting and for what reason? Was it a war fought by clones or with clones or against clones? 
This mystery would be hinted at in Star Wars ancillary content for 25 years before finally being unleashed in Star Wars Episode II, Attack of the Clones. The Shroud of the Dark Side has fallen. Begun. The Clone War has. The prequel trilogy is touchy stuff for many Star Wars fans. Some love them, some hate them. What is important to us in this moment are two elements. First, George Lucas allowed this era of time to ferment in the audience's imagination. In A New Hope, the principal conflict was the Rebellion and the Empire. The Clone Wars just gave us the context for several participants in this current struggle. Throwing too many ingredients into that pot would have diluted the entire broth. Secondly, note how George Lucas began the Clone Wars in Episode 2 and finished it in Episode 3. He didn't delve into every battle. In fact, almost the entire conflict happened off-screen. We see the first battle and the last, but otherwise, he left the Clone Wars to be explored by other creatives, first by Gendy Tartakovsky in the minisodes of Star Wars Clone Wars, which, not incidentally, introduced us to General Grievous. But know that I, General Grievous, am not completely without mercy. I will grant you a warrior's death. Prepare. Then by Dave Filoni and others in the computer animated series. Get those fighters off of us! Your fancy flying is making it difficult! Hang in there! And also by writers Henry Gilroy, Stephen Melking, and a host of artists in the Dark Horse comic series. The point here is to give up a bit of creative control to your audience and your collaborators when it comes to the specifics of the world outside of your principal conflict. George Lucas allowed others to participate in his story universe, and while that relationship was a little difficult at times and had to be reset in certain aspects when the Disney trilogy was launched, it also influenced a whole generation of young fans who now view the Clone Wars content and its spin-offs as their favorite pieces in the franchise, causing massive excitement whenever they pop up in media. You cannot train him. What? Why not? I've seen what such feelings can do to a fully trained Jedi Knight to the best of us. Let's create such an era for your own story world. Look back to the two prior prompts. You should have two or three factions within your universe, and perhaps some locales where there were events that transpired before those organizations came into conflict. Choose one narrow band that could unite some of these disparate elements. Four years at a boarding school, or how a nation was founded, or the circumstances by which an evil artifact was formed. The evil dark dragon blade. A legendary sword, said to have been carved out of the bones of a black dragon. It brought plague and death to the world during the age of ancient myth. Lightly codify this particular area with a few attributes, a few key players, a few key conflicts, or a few key locales. You don't want to get too specific, or else you might write yourself into a corner if you need to change some details later on. But a little bit of specificity will help guide you as you compose your work. Make sure that you also write down which of these characters or elements remain to the present day of your story world, which have been modified, and which, if any, have been lost to time, at least for the moment. Finally, write down one paragraph about what is different about this era from the current one. Sometimes this will be technological, in that your Lovecraftian horror series may skip from ancient Rome to Victorian England to the modern day. This is not my story, nor even the story of the Roivas family. It is the story of humanity. Or perhaps it is more about aesthetic, which might be dark or brooding in one era and campy or cheerful in another. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. 
Having some distinctions between the two eras isn't just about setting the time. It's about setting audiences' expectations. They'll instantly recognize the different eras of your content if you have a good level of distinction between the two. Make sure that you have given room for their imaginations to grow, of course. If you codify too much, then fans won't get to dream about what might be, because everything will just be written down. Once you finish that, well done! You've gone through three distinct phases of prep for the broader mysteries of your story world. You can continue to develop these if you're a more Tolkien-esque creator of languages, or perhaps you want to have a broad outline and allow certain elements to come to the forefront, like Jeff Smith in his seminal graphic novel series, Bone. You can find lots of other resources and ideas throughout the rest of this podcast. Subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or any fine podcatcher to catch up, or visit me at steelphilippec.com or on Twitter, at Words of Steel, or at Building ABSW. Our next episode will feature all the prompts of our series in advanced story world design. You can similarly find all the prompts for basic story world design in episode 7. So in just an hour of listening and some exercises, you'll have a great foundation for a narrative universe. I hope to explore it myself when I see it on a bookshelf, the silver screen, or my laptop. Until then, keep up the good work, listeners. Building a Better Story World is written, produced, recorded, and sound engineered by Steel Tyler Philippec. The theme song, Asia, is by Ilya Marfin via icons8.com. All narrative clips are used under the Fair Use Doctrine, as defined by Title 17 of the United States Code, subsection 107, in that they are used for nonprofit educational work for the purpose of analysis, have been transformed from their initial records by audio engineering for podcasting, and are not substantive of the entire work or function as a direct market substitute. Audio effects are provided by freesound.org under the Creative Commons license. If you feel that this production has unfairly used a piece of audio to which you own the rights, please contact helmstarmedia at gmail.com.